0: Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobek. This episode was recorded on February 6th, 2020. It's possible some things about the coronavirus outbreak has changed by the time you listen to it, so just please keep that in mind. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We have a really great show today but it's a little different than the topics that I normally cover. In the past episodes, I've covered topics that relate directly to pediatric oncology as it's situated in a global health context. But this one's a bit of a crossover because we will be talking about the novel coronavirus that has arisen in China and is threatening much of East Asia and indeed the whole world at this point. And we will be talking to a world expert in vaccine development, um, who is, in fact, developing a vaccine for the coronavirus right now. His name is Dr. Peter Hotez, and I will talk about him more in a second. There are two reasons why I think this is a good topic to cover for this podcast. One is that it is well known that immunocompromised patients, like pediatric cancer patients, are at risk for infectious complications. And so when these types of infectious epidemics, or uh, potentially pandemics, arise, then the more vulnerable populations are the ones that are most likely to be affected. So, that's something to think about, especially if you are a frontline healthcare worker in one of the regions where the coronavirus is more prevalent right now. So, it makes sense to take a step back and look at the big picture of what is the coronavirus doing and how might it be changing and where might it be going. So, that's one reason is that there is a fairly direct link to pediatric oncology specifically. But the second reason that I thought that this was a good topic to cover on the podcast is the fact that to truly provide adequate care to every child with cancer anywhere in the world or every child with any sort of complicated or chronic disease or any person for that matter it's going to take a transdisciplinary effort it's not just the doctors or the nurses that focus specifically on that discipline and you know, on the podcast we've heard from social workers and we've heard from dietitians and psychologists who are involved in the field but it takes even more than that it takes other subspecialists such as infectious disease doctors or critical care doctors or nephrologists But even bigger than that, it takes politicians, it takes economists, it takes people who think about health systems, because pediatric cancer care is situated within a really, really complex ecosystem. And so over time, I hope to reach across the boundaries of different disciplines and have meaningful conversations about how different fields can come together to improve care in ways that don't always go acknowledged, but are nonetheless necessary. So be on the lookout, as I hope to be doing this more in the future. Okay. Enough philosophizing. As I said today, I will be speaking with Dr. Peter Hotez, who is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he is also the Director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and the Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. Dr. Hotez is an internationally recognized physician-scientist in neglected tropical diseases and vaccine development. As the head of Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, he leads a team in developing new vaccines for neglected tropical diseases like hookworm, schistosomiasis, leishmaniasis, Chagas disease, SARS, and MERS, and now the coronavirus. And collectively, these diseases affect hundreds of millions of children and adults around the world. So along with being a researcher, he's written several books, including Forgotten People, Forgotten Diseases. Blue Marble Health, an innovative plan to fight diseases of the poor amid wealth, and vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism. So as an aside, and as you'll hear us allude to in the episode, he has a daughter who has autism. So he is a firm vaccine advocate, and he speaks out against a rather vocal group of folks who are against vaccines here in the United States. So I really love this conversation. Not only because Dr. Hotez has a deep knowledge of this particular area and a very broad knowledge of global health in general, but also because he's one of these people that reaches across disciplines, both within the scientific community, but also to the general public. He believes in being both a public advocate for patients and an educator for anyone who wants to learn more about these areas. So I really appreciated his time amidst his busy schedule. Um, He's quite in demand right now, as you can imagine. And so I think you will really enjoy this conversation. So after a short word about our sponsor, we will go ahead and get to the conversation. Parents of children who have cancer have many questions after diagnosis. Why does my child have cancer? Or how did she get it? But one of the most important questions that parents and providers want to answer is, is will she receive the best treatment possible? Every parent wants their child to receive the best care possible, and I know that every healthcare worker wants that as well. Unfortunately, cancer is a very complex disease to treat, and the quality of the care provided can always be improved. This is one of the main reasons why Resonance Oncology was founded. Its mission is to amplify the health of cancer patients through supporting clinical research, education, and a variety of quality improvement projects. Resonance and its network of experts facilitate local research and evidence-based practices through the deployment of information systems, mentoring, and statistical support that has helped improve outcomes with colleagues and customers in North America, South America, Africa, and Asia. I know the founders of Resonance personally, and believe me when I say This is more than a business for them. They are passionate about improving cancer care around the world. The proof of their passion is that they offer their software solutions 100% for free for use in low and middle income countries. 100% for free. No strings attached. So if you have an idea on how to improve care where you work, especially if you're in a low or middle income country, but you're not certain how to get it done or you just need additional support to do it, then contact the team at Resonance Oncology today. So to contact them, you can email them at info at resonancehealth.org, or you can go to the website www.amplifyinghealth.com, and you can look for these links in the podcast description in your podcast player. So use these links to schedule an appointment with Resonance Oncology to learn more about their mission and how they may assist you in providing the best care possible. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Peter Hotez to talk about the ongoing coronavirus epidemic and how it is changing and what are our prospects for treatment. So, Dr. Hotez, thank you for joining us on the show. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you spend your time doing besides talking about coronavirus? And then how did you get involved in this mess?
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm trained in pediatric infectious disease. I'm an MD-PhD vaccine scientist. Uh, primarily interested in making vaccines, no one else will make. Uh, heading a nonprofit at Texas Children's Hospital called the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. That's co-directed by myself and my science partner for 20 years, Dr. Mary Elena Botazzi, who's also at Baylor and Texas Children's. And we came down here in 2011 with about 12 people to also start a new school of tropical medicine called the National School of Tropical Medicine. Really, one of the first schools of its kind, focused on poverty-related neglected tropical diseases. And we now have vaccines for schistosomiasis and hookworm in clinical trials, the new Chagas disease vaccine. But then now we've built out a whole new piece with faculty devoted to outbreak investigation and epidemiology of tropical infection. So we're about 15 faculty in all, 50 people in all have more or less split evenly between vaccine development versus epidemiology and outbreak investigation
0: very good. And then um, tell us a little bit about your involvement with the coronavirus. You've kind of come forward as a world expert, I would say. So how did you what is your background with coronavirus and its relative where are we today?
1: So we didn't set out to make coronavirus vaccines. You know, we were focused on parasitic diseases, you know, poverty related debilitating infections. And then but we had a good collaborator at the New York Blood Center named Sarah Lustigman who then introduced us to a heavyweight coronavirus Virology Group at the New York Blood Center, headed by Shibo uh, Jiang and uh, Lan Ying Du, and we put together this consortium together with the Galveston National Laboratory uh, at Kencheng, at um, UTMB Galveston, and we wound up having this great expertise in coronavirus, so we thought there was a, an RFA, a request for applications from NIAID, NIH, on biodefense pathogens that we put together this proposal to make the SARS vaccine, the severe acute respiratory syndrome that decimated uh, China, destroyed Toronto's economy until the Rolling Stones played a concert there and to re- make it recover. And they had a great idea. And so this is, you know, a lot of our vaccines, we did the discovery in our labs. This one was discovered by our collaborators at the New York Blood Center and UTMB. And they had found that they could neutralize the outer spike protein of the coronavirus that docks with the ACE2 receptor deep in the lungs. But the problem, though, with coronavirus vaccines, like many respiratory vaccines, is you can get this paradoxical immune enhancement that can make mm-hmm. things worse. And this is what derailed the RSV vaccine in the 60s. There was a attempt to make a, a whole virus RSV vaccine Jointly between the NIH and Children's National Medical Center, and the kids actually wound up doing worse. So that really threw cold water on a generation of respiratory virus vaccines. And it looked like the same was true of the coronavirus, but they had identified a tiny piece of, a 200 amino acid piece of the S protein that docks with the receptor that gives you protective immunity, but doesn't seem to give you all that antibody-dependent enhancement. So that was the idea. We got it funded. Um, It was a great grant. It was a $6 million grant. And we wound up making it and even having it manufactured. So we had manufactured vaccine antigen ready to go, but we could never persuade any additional investors, whether public or private, to keep it going in terms of moving it into the clinic and clinical trials because there was no more SARS, and at that point nobody cared about SARS anymore. Mm. So uh, we wound up. It uh, was frozen. Mary Elena's group kept it on stability protocol, meaning you take it out every few months and prove to the FDA if you need to that it's stable, (laughs) hasn't degraded. And in time, we started forgetting about it other than the stability protocol that was supported by Texas Children's. And then when we started to see the information coming out of China in the first part of this year, what was great about, you know, Chinese science has changed so much. You know, when SARS broke out in 2002, 2003, you weren't getting any information now hmm. because we have all these platforms for preprint publication or preprint information sharing like through bioarchive for mm-hmm. instance the chinese scientists are putting all this great stuff up on bioarchive and i could see and i was basically following this seeing how okay here's what the virus is it binds to the same ac2 receptor as the sars- uh, coronavirus. And it shares about 80% sequence homology. So I started emailing my colleague at, who was at the New York Blood Center. One of them had moved back to China, to Fudan University in Shanghai, uh, Shibu Jiang. I was saying, hey, Shibu, what do you think? This could, maybe we're sitting on a an end coronavirus vaccine. And he said, yeah, it could very well be. And we're trying to get the actual virus to prove that and to do some binding experiments. So on that basis, uh, I started contacting my old program officer, who was uh, SARS, Eric Stemi. And then we wound up getting in touch with Tony Fauci. And, you know, Tony makes himself very accessible. And we organized a teleconference. And, and my life has been one long teleconference <laughs> ever sure. since for the last three weeks, trying to figure out how to make this happen. Yeah. Um, on two fronts, one to actually take our existing SARS vaccine, get it into China, hmm. uh, but also to also make the actual receptor binding domain of the end coronavirus. And how do you get funding for that? So we've been in discussions with the NIH, with BARDA. We got a call from the Office of Science and Technology Policy from the White House. And I'd worked with them when I was U.S. science envoy in the Obama administration. And then CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Mm -hmm. and Innovation. And then... Trying to also figure out who the right best person in China to talk to, it's just been a a whirlwind. In between, you know, an interesting aspect of my life is I'm a MD-PhD laboratory investigator, vaccine scientist, but I do a lot of public outreach initially around neglected tropical diseases and getting people to care about those and then, you know, confronting the anti-vaccine movement because I have Mm. a daughter with autism and I wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, which... Which is public. excellent, by the oh, way, for new so listeners. Uh, but it's putting me in the witness protection program because sure. it's a public enemy number one with the anti-vaccine or or, or one of the top five yeah. public enemies with the anti-vaccine
0: movement. Yeah. And then... If you follow him on Twitter, you will see what he's talking about. You can look for Peter Hotez. What's, what is your Twitter handle? It's just at Peter Hotez. At Peter Hotez. So you can see what he's talking about on the anti-vaccine front.
1: Yeah, it's a scary space. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping I've reached a critical mass now where I've blocked so many people <laughs> that... Uh, you can always <laughs> hope, <laughs> right? Um, but it's become less interesting now that I've blocked people. But you know, when they start threatening your family, that's yeah. uh, or me, that's uh, that's a, when they cross that line. Then it's time for a block. So, um, and now the journalists tend to know me. And so the fact that I was also making a coronavirus Mm -hmm. vaccine was interesting for them. So I've been doing nonstop interviews. And and my media career, it's kind of interesting. It it goes in cycles, depending Mm -hmm. on whether there's a catastrophic pandemic. So You're known uh, as that guy, huh? So yeah, so this first started when I was uh, with the anthrax attacks in Washington, two thousand one. And then it was uh, you know, who do you talk to? The guy who has the microbiology department next to the White House. Yeah. I was chair of microbiology at GW. And then <laughs> it was H one N one 2009, then Ebola in 2014, especially when we had the cases in Dallas, and here I was in Texas. And so that yep. made it interesting. And then uh, when Zika hit South Texas in 2016. Yep. And then when Texas became the center of the anti vaccine movement <laughs> with the link to the Tea Party and the far right wing of the Republican Party in 2015, and, and now again. So, yeah. So, you know, when you start
0: seeing me on TV, the world's in trouble. <laughs> it's like, uh oh. So. Yeah, well, you are the man of the hour again, as, as the listeners just heard. So why don't we take a step back? We've now heard that you are embroiled right in the middle of trying to develop a vaccine and find some answers to this, by all accounts, a, a rather serious epidemic, potential pandemic. But let's take a step back. And can you tell us some reliable information about what we just know, just basics about the coronavirus? Um, where did it come from? How infectious do we think it is? How dangerous do we think it is? That kind of stuff.
1: Coronaviruses, many of them, are like many serious human virus pathogens, like Ebola, like Nipah, Um, The same is true of many coronaviruses. They circulate in bats and probably cause very little symptoms in the way of bats. And what seems to be happening with these very serious coronaviruses that cause lower respiratory infections is they eventually make a jump, whether it's through a mutation, I don't think we really understand that, to a second animal species. So in the case of SARS, it was these funny-looking animals called palm civets or civet cats that are... Uh, and in the case of mares coronavirus that arose out of the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula, it was camels. And so then it jumps to, to humans. Now, the problem that you have in China, if you, we used to do a lot of work in China. We used to maintain a lab in Shanghai at the Institute for Parasitic Diseases. And you would go to the market nearby, and they have virtually every kind of animal under the sun, including various exotic mammals that the locals use for either herbal remedies or, or some, some type of medicinal uses or magical properties. And so they're keeping those things in cages, palm civets and pangolins, and it's this weird menagerie mm. of animals. And they're not kept under nice conditions. They're tiny cages. Really, they, they should be outlawed. They're tiny cages with dead and dying animals in them. And after the sars epidemic in 2002-2003 the Chinese authorities were supposed to clamp down on them and and maybe they have several of them but uh, not in this big one in Wuhan it was going for a while and it was the perfect storm Hmm. where you had these animals and people were coming into contact and so there was you know starting around December of last year in 2019 there were virus infections acquired from from these animals so animal to human transmission and it didn't take very long for this to turn into human-to-human transmission. And there, when this first came out, I thought, well, this is going to be like SARS, only animals to humans initially. But then it was clear human-to-human transmission was going on. And that's it's quite a transmissible uh, virus. So, uh, you know, when when SARS occurred in 2002, 2003, the, the Chinese leadership was accused of, one, not being transparent hmm. – into not doing enough to contain the epidemic, just trying to being put in denial. And there's still that question of denial among the citizens, but I you know, from my standpoint, uh the Chinese leadership was pretty uh on top of this. You know, they and, and what they've done is really extraordinary. They're they're quarantining basically Hubei province, uh initially Wuhan, but then mm-hmm. several cities. And that's small not a small thing. That's yeah. like the Chicago or the Pittsburgh of the of China, only a hundred times bigger, as all Chinese cities are. I think it's a city of eleven million people. It's like you know, trying to put Southeast Texas under yep. quarantine. But they they seem to be doing it. There's still viruses spreading all over China. So if you look, the World Health Organization is now updating this pretty regularly. It's in every province of China. So in that sense, the cat's out of the bag, but um, most of the cases are still in central China and, and Hubei, and now the worry is it's going to go beyond China. So that's the question I'm often asked, what's the risk of, of the United, to the United States? And there is a risk, and what I've been saying... And I said it on both Fox News and MSNBC, so it must be true because, you know, uh, how
0: many people get to go on both Fox News and MSNBC? Those are two quite partisan uh, channels in the United States.
1: You know, one thing I learned being in Washington for 11 years was if you want to get anything done, you can do it provided you're willing to reach across the aisle and not be too ideological, And, and I still stand by that. So, you know, I think what's what we're going to see in the United States is we will see an increase in the number of cases. Right now it's around 12. Those numbers will go up, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even a 100 or a couple of hundred. I, I don't think we'll see anything nearly as bad as what we're we're seeing in China. But you never know for certain because we still don't understand all the transmission patterns and things. So I'm relatively optimistic about the U.S. as well as European countries. I think the reason why Dr Tedros the Director General of the of the World Health Organization declared the public health emergency of international mm. concern was because of what happens when this goes into resource depleted countries. So there's a lot of Chinese, you know, traveling back and forth to places like the Philippines and Laos, Cambodia. That's where things can go very badly because they don't have a adequate health system in place. Um there's not the monitoring. There's not the disease surveillance, and then we also have through the through uh, the President Xi and the the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa. We have between one and three million Chinese working in Africa right now. So and reg, pretty regular flights, especially going to Addis and to Ethiopia from from China, and you can imagine what happens if this virus gains a foothold in you know you you name your Sub-Saharan African country, there's some are better than others in terms of health system infrastructure. So that's where things could go very badly as well. So that's that to me is my big concern where this could really emerge into a pandemic, meaning that it's an epidemic and with lots of transmission in, in multiple countries in different parts of the world. And I think there's definitely that possibility where it could uh, uh, become pandemic.
0: Sure. When thinking about the response to the outbreak both, you know, you mentioned from the Chinese government, but also from governments more generally. How do you think the the relevant countries have responded so far? Or do um, institutions seem to be taking the appropriate steps? Do you think there's more that should be done in the regions, particularly the regions that are most vulnerable? Um, I'm just curious how you're reading it so right now.
1: Everything that I can tell in terms of the US, Western European countries, mm-hmm. uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, I think Malaysia, even Singapore, they know how to do this. They're on top of it. And the- through the benefit of Chinese science, they had advanced warning on what this virus is and some idea on how it's transmitted. So I think I'm not so worried. The low and the big low and middle income countries, you know, what's happening going to happen if this goes into India or Ethiopia or Tanzania or, or, as I was saying, some of the Southeast Asian countries are going to Myanmar. Who knows? You know, I just there's just no way. I mean, there's a few positive things that could happen. One is historic, you know, when we've known what we've known about the there's also a bunch of human and animal coronaviruses that cause upper respiratory infections, uh sore throat, URI symptoms. They tend to peak in, in the northern hemisphere, they tend to peak in uh, around January, around now. So the hope is if it be, and SARS, when it, when it broke out of China, I believe peaked in March. Mm-hmm. So the hope is that there's a sharp seasonality to this. And as we move into April and May, there for reasons that we don't entirely understand, I don't think for a lot of viruses, we don't really understand their seasonality, it could really diminish. Mm-hmm. And then the question is will it come back sure um will this be a seasonal thing like flu you know how do you know it's a new agent so we 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 have no idea and so that so the potential good news is that your seasonality what that means for the southern hemisphere because you know for flu for instance it's inverted right so it peaks in the summer months uh, not in the winter months so that's that's going to be interesting to look at and whether we can accelerate a vaccine Hmm. in, in a reasonable period of time if we know you know the the technical feat of making a vaccine against a coronavirus tends not to be nearly as bad as flu or or HIV-AIDS because of antigenic, it doesn't seem to be that antigenic variation. But the problem that you get into with coronavirus vaccines, like other respiratory vaccines, is that immune enhancement. So each each vaccine target has its own little shop of horrors right in terms of what what you worry about so that that's what i worry about for coronavirus. and it's and i think there are now at least four or five promising technologies and mm-hmm. candidates out there including ours for vaccinating so it's a question of whether the world can organize itself to move all those four or five candidates forward simultaneously because if you just rely on one technology that's that's a very high risk strategy
0: Sure. And what do we know about timeline for vaccine development right now, both yours and the other? Uh, well, before? the
1: the actual making of the vaccine is is not so difficult. Uh, you know, for ours is, a, is an old technology. It's a receptor binding domain of the of a, a recombinant protein vaccine, genetically engineered yeast in our case. So I, that's, you know, and we have precedent for that. We, the hepatitis B vaccine is a yeast-derived recombinant protein, and then you have the uh, HPV vaccine that's also recombinant protein. So we know we can make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with the DNA and RNA vaccines. They're not that challenging to make. The problem is that all they all feed into a bottleneck. And the bottleneck is, you know, despite what the anti-vaxxers claim, that vaccines are not safety tests, the truth is they are probably the single most heavily tested pharmaceuticals we know about in terms of safety. And that's why it takes so long to develop a vaccine. It's generally not the technology behind it, its which there is some investment in that. In our case, we spent years making this uh, SARS vaccine, but now it's manufactured. But you still have to do one an animal toxicology study regulated by the National Regulatory Authority, in our case FDA, under good laboratory practices, done at a specialty contractor and knows how to do that that takes time and then phase 1 phase 2 trials take time and there's just so much you can compress that timeline and you can't do that so up up to a point so you can only do it up to a point so that's what's that's what's going to slow us down and which is frustrating you know for our SARS vaccine because had we found that investment to move forward with the clinical trials back in 2016 after we made it we could literally have had a vaccine ready to deploy in China now, mm. and that's uh, so that's a bit frustrating, sure,
0: and i think I've, i I don't know if I missed it, or have heard you say elsewhere it could take up to a year. Is that a okay timeline, or is that just highly variable?
1: Yeah, the question is whether there you know one of the things we learned. Uh, in deploying cholera vaccine into places like Yemen and, and Haiti or uh, the Ebola vaccine now in DR Congo is there there's opportunities for innovation and in regulatory science in order to accelerate some of those safety testings. I mean, I think what's going to come out of Ebola vaccine development in Congo in 2019 is going, you know, that is going to be one of the most important public health stories ever told When somebody gets around to it, it's going to be worth worth a documentary, a serious documentary. I mean, because this was a vaccine that was uh, administered in clinical trials under some of the most difficult circumstances we know about through conflict and war right? And despite that, uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization with Gavi and UNICEF and the Wellcome Trust and Alliance of several organizations, the Merkin and Company and, and Barda was able to vaccinate over 200,000 people and diverted a catastrophe that would have dwarfed the Ebola epidemic in West Africa in 2014, I think, and really stabilized the African continent. And that, it, fortunately, that vaccine turned out to be more than 90 percent Protective, so that is, uh, as I say, I think it's one of the great public health stories that has yet yet been told. Yeah. But there, that book is waiting to be written.
0: Yeah. yeah, excellent. Well, I mean, that's incredible work, and so we're all rooting for you and thanks, uh, thanks. this process. Um, unfortunately, our time is rapidly coming to a close. So I have one final question for you. I have a lot of listeners who are healthcare providers that take care of immunocompromised children with um, malignancies, primarily. And so, what I want to ask you is, what do we know about the specific risk of um, mortality or morbidity with the coronavirus, both for just regular folks, but then also thinking about specialized population like immunocompromised people. So
1: there's still more we don't know than we do know. What we think is although the official numbers as of today are going up to 28,000, some modelers and epidemiologists think the real number is around 100,000 at least. And that's because the only cases that are being recorded are those causing severe morbidity, often requiring hospitalization or even intensive care support. So what's thought of is that there's many more people with low-grade symptoms or upper respiratory symptoms who are not getting to medical attention. So the good news there is that probably the mortality rate is lower than we, we think. Uh, I think the the real risk right now is frontline healthcare workers. You know they're, they're at risk, and we've already seen potentially a death or two from among healthcare workers. The ones who are doing very badly with this virus tend to be older individuals over the age of 60, more males than females for reasons that we don't understand, and those with underlying diabetes and hypertension and there's that there's an, an emerging story about diabetes and infectious diseases in general that we don't understand so for instance those dying of dengue in India are those with underlying diabetes mm. and hypertension those dying of tuberculosis in the border in Mexico are those with underlying diabetes and hypertension so there's a great pathogenesis story because nobody really understands the, the basis of that so those with underlying diabetes and hypertension I don't know if anyone really looked at those with the kinds of immunocompromised kids that you have to deal with on a regular basis, either because they have severe combined immune deficiency, a genetic immune deficiency, or HIV-AIDS, acquired immune deficiency, or because they're undergoing cancer chemotherapy or immunosuppressive therapy for one reason or another. Uh, I would imagine they are at increased risk, right? We know about this from other respiratory pathogens like paraflu or, or varicella, but um, That story may emerge in time as well. I think we should assume there's risk there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there any particular advice you could leave us with in terms of, you know, a frontline healthcare worker who um, either might be wondering about it or just worrying, you know, what could come next for my country? What would you uh, say to someone like that?
1: Well, I would say those who are, I know a number of your listeners are particularly interested in Africa. Right now, this virus has not gained a foothold there as far as we know. My worry is it'll take time for people to even realize that it has gained a foothold because we don't have the surveillance system in place. So watch out for serious respiratory infections. and, And we need to have a low threshold for alerting public health authorities about that. One of the reasons that I was against the travel ban from China is because it's very stigmatizing. Hmm. And once this virus moves into Philippines or Myanmar or sub-Saharan Africa, the National Health Authority there is going to have to think twice about whether they want to divulge that information, because then it subjects your country to a, a travel ban. So I I think travel bans tend to be counterproductive Mm. in many aspects of them because they tend to incentivize people not to be transparent. And uh, so we'll see how that plays out as well. Interesting.
0: And then one thing I can't believe I forgot to ask, there are reports about the virus potentially being infective um, up to two weeks prior to onset of symptoms. Has that been verified or do we know anything about this latency period?
1: Well, there's a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, from an experience in Germany where they thought that's happening. Now there's a question about whether person, one of the individuals may have had some symptoms but hmm. didn't adequately report it you know it's not unusual I and mean, we you know for instance for measles Uh, measles could be transmitted from an individual who hasn't shown the rash or even the prodrome yet uh, a couple of days ahead of time. So I would say this. I think, you know, it's still possible. Uh, If it is, it's late in the incubation period, you know, maybe the day or two before they show symptoms. But it's also been noted that people with respiratory viruses, even if that's the case, you have a much higher viral load and more likely to be infectious while you've got symptoms. So there probably are individuals who are to become sick that are still transmitting virus. But I think most of the cases are probably coming from people actively infected with cough and sneezing and all those kinds of things.
0: Okay. Well, Dr. Hotez, you've been unbelievably generous with your time amidst your very busy schedule right now. Um, So thank you very much for talking to us and for giving us some real, reliable, non-social media generated information about the coronavirus and the prospects for a vaccine. Thanks so much for having me and good luck
1: on your podcast.
0: Thank you very much.